Philippians chapter 4. I want to read verses 1 through 9. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now I appeal to Yodia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. I ask you, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable, right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me everything you heard from me and saw me doing, then the God of peace will be with you. Amen. You may be seated. Coming to the end, of course, of that series of sermons I initiated about the topic of words, I want to talk this morning about a final word about words as we bring to this short letter that Paul writes to the church of Philippi. Without giving you much detail from Acts chapter 16, but I'd simply say that here is a short letter in which Paul writes to express both his gratitude and to accommodate those Christians at Philippi who were masters at understanding the spirit of generosity. But when you read the letter here in this third and fourth chapter, particularly chapter two, there is something yet nagging at Paul's spirit. And Paul utilizes what I consider to be the idea of words to convey not just his words of gratitude for their acts of being generous when he needed help in doing missionary work. But he further wants to use these words to provide what I call a stern disciplinary action. He's disappointed in one area of their life that is standing out and that is overshadowing all of the good that they have done. Somewhere in their congregation, we are not told specifically what it is, but something in this small church is happening between a few people in the church. 
enough so that it's disrupting the entire congregation that it might be effective, not just what it's doing outwardly, but it's becoming obvious that something is missing inwardly. They are putting on a good show in expressing out of the church, but inside the church, there is a tension and a spirit of dissension. Something is happening to the point where Paul says, I certainly do love the fact that you are a giving people, but you've got problems internally and they can only be resolved if you are willing to meet them. And so Paul provides what I call directed as well as decisive and disciplined words. And that's, that's what he's going to use. He's going to use a selected group of words to make his point clear because that's the venue, the community venue that we use to communicate with one another, words. Actions are excellent, of course, but words are a bit different. They have the power to be descriptive and to be persuasive and to be life-changing, life-altering, constructive, and even empowering. And sometimes sensual as well as comforting. But they also possess the power to be oppressive and destructive, assaulting and injuring, limiting and deconstructing of people's lives and spirit to a point where you can literally shut a person down with the use of words. And yet Paul is going to utilize this linguistic effort, the pronunciation of sounds, to grasp both the psyche and the seat of the human being, the heart, that he might bring about a change in their situation. I know there's something wrong because if you read the second chapter and begin reading at verse 1, listen to what Paul says, which tells me that something is going on in this congregation. He raises the question, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Now that might be, that question might be a response from the ending of chapter 1 because there are those within the church, perhaps at large as well, who are wrestling with the fact that they are struggling as a congregation just because of their witness. And sometimes you feel like the world is against you just because you know Jesus. And just because you're taking a stand or there are some things that you believe in that the rest do not believe in, but you're holding on to what you believe, sometimes it's a challenge to you to remain committed to what you do believe. And yet it's Paul who's trying to warn them in the ending of that first chapter, beginning at verse 28, he reminds them, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This is a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved by God himself. Translation, sometimes when you stand firm, don't change your position because someone is attempting to be intimidating. But hold on to what you believe, and if you believe it, trust God to bring you out, even though what you're believing may be contrary to what others are trying to say. 
For he says in that 29th verse, you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. And then he says, we are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. He says to these people who he had the privilege of starting as a congregation, I, I've been through a lot and I know what it means to struggle and I'm trying to show you as an example, don't throw in the towel because it looks rough. But hold your ground because God is faithful. But then he says in the second chapter, beginning in that first verse, he says in that question, do you get any encouragement for belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit are your hearts tender and compassionate now that that lets me know right there that something is shifting it's not just about your giving but it's it's about something happening within the inside of you then he says if if all of this is true look what he says in verse 2 then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other that lets me know there's a lot of drama going on. That within that small group of people, there's a lot of tick for tat. And there's a lot of thro a stone throwing. And although there can be difference of opinion, listen to what Paul says, that's not my issue, says Paul. This thing goes deeper than that. And I want you to know that the words that you are using on one hand, our words that are encouraging by way of expressing and giving are the same words in terms of a venue internally that you're using to destroy each other. Listen to what he says. If what's true, if you find any encouragement in belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit, if your hearts have tenderness and compassion, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. That, that's how I know they're off course. That's how I know they're putting on a good show, but Paul said, you ain't fooling me. I know you well enough to know that something is going on, and for whatever reason, he does not tell us details, but he tells us enough to know when you got something going on in your group, don't try to cover it up. Don't try to sweep it under the rug. Don't try to ignore it. Confront it and be honest about it. Because if you don't, it's only going to fester and grow. And in time, the anger and the agony of whatever the sore is, is only going to irritate to a point where you start to splinter. Listen to what he says. Verse 3. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in somebody else. You must have the same mind and attitude that Jesus possessed. So he's, he's telling us in this text that what you are doing is slowly shifting Christ out of the seat of priority and placing yourself there. You're placing your own desires there, which is only creating a rift as well as dissension and contention 
in the context of your congregation. Then he says, to ignore the rest of chapter 2, he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, listen to me. Whatever happens, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I will never get tired of telling you that, says Paul, over and over again, because it is the safeguard of your faith. Find a way to keep the joy alive, because if you don't, you will eventually succumb to whatever the pressure is, and joy will be replaced with regret. So Paul is basically telling us that whatever it is that is causing the joy not to be obvious in your life, confront it, deal with it, get rid of it, and replace it with the joy of the Lord, which is your strength. Then he says, as he opens in chapter 4, here's the crust of my issue. He says, I'm tired of just hanging around the periphery of trying to tell you that I know something is wrong. Let me pinpoint, which is what we do not like to do when it involves people. We like to use words and we like to use phrases like, well, I've heard. Or they say. Or I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to point the finger at anybody and watch what Paul does in this fourth chapter he says my beloved brothers and sisters stay true to the Lord and by that he means God never says somebody told me Murphy that you said or that you are doing instead God comes directly to me and puts his finger right in my chest and says, this is what I know you're doing. In other words, God don't deal in the peripheral. Okay, let, let's translate that. God doesn't deal, deal in hearsay. Gossip. You know what that is, don't you? You know, stuff we heard some, you know, one dog, if he carries or brings a bone, he will carry a bone away with him. might work and I think it's working so he says stay true to the Lord and and, and here's what I want to do let, let me give you Paul's remedy to why words are critical and you must examine how you use them before you use them lest you use them in the wrong sense and state and they end up meaning something totally different than what you intended so he says, watch this, in this first verse, he says, it's important that you know that I want to see you. Now, remember, Paul is in prison writing this letter in Rome, waiting for his sentence to come from Nero. So he writes to them and he says, I want to see you and know that I love you and know that it's important that I'm writing with this tone. I'm saying things the way that I'm saying them. Here's the, here's the first point. So that you will understand you are my pastoral reward. Now, where did I get that from? Look at what he says. He says, I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I received for my work. In other words, he says, as someone who preaches to you, 
I get no enjoyment out of seeing you not grow, but instead your growth is a reward of my labor. And that brings me satisfaction because then I know that my work is not in vain. So in other words, if I translate this, I'm trying to tell you every Sunday that I stand here, I'm not just doing it for the sake of calisthenics. I'm doing it because somewhere along the line, now I don't know, I really don't know because you don't tell me, but I really hope somewhere along the line you get something out of what I'm trying to say and that you experience some growth because you are my reward. My reward is to see that you have overcome or that you are growing or that you are expanding or that you've learned to take the blinders off and see life differently or that you've learned to take a stand for yourself, to visualize for yourself, to push yourself forward, to not allow yourself to be defeated. The reward, says Paul, is when you grow, I'm excited. And he says, I want you to see that first because it's important you understand when at times I have to be stern in my language, I'm not trying to hurt you, I'm trying to help you. And isn't this something how there sometimes people can see what we don't see? They can see us doing things that we can't see ourselves doing although we're doing it. And then we get angry when they point out what we are doing until we take a moment to step back and then look at what they're saying and realize they are exactly right. I'm doing exactly what they said I should not be doing. So Paul says, first thing, let me tell you, you are my pastoral reward. So now he says, second thing, here is my plea for reconciliation. Look at what he says in verse 2. Now I appeal. That's a plea. I am crying out to you. I appeal. Now he narrows it down. No more general what I heard. No more it's been said. No more the rumor is. No more the talk is. I know where the problem lies. There is a difference between two of you in this church. Look what he says. I appeal to Euodia and Syntyche, please, first, because you are a Christian. That's what he says right there, because you belong to the Lord. That's where Jesus has to remain priority, because if Christ is a priority, then that's the first place I've got to look to begin to make sure that I am in the mindset of reconciliation. Why? Because everything that Jesus did was about reconciling me back to God when he went to Calvary. So in his walk, those three and a half years of ministry, he says, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, those who know that they need help and that they are willing to look at me for their help. Now Paul says, I appeal to you as a believer in Christ, translation, cut the crap. If we were outside of church, I'd say it differently. But, but that's what he says, cut the crap. Look, look what he says in verse 2. I appeal to you because you belong to the Lord, settle your difference. And he says to these two ladies, 
I'm not telling which one of you to go to the other first. I'm telling both of you to go to each other first. Well, if you do that, there's no room in between for us to discuss who's going to come to who first. Paul says, I want both of you to get it together because you are extinguishing your light for the kingdom. All right, so let me bring it down more plain to you. So when we don't work with our differences in church and we, we don't, we're not willing to go ahead and face the fact that we have an issue and we need to address it, what we do is we affect any new member who comes to the church. Because we give an impression on the Lord's day how things look one way, but then when they catch us behind the scene to do ministry work and see our bickering with one another, then they realize, uh-uh, this ain't what I signed up for. There's a disagreement between us and we never confront it. So we continue the bickering, which only increases the anger, but causes that person who has just come into the congregation to rethink their decision. Did I make the right one? Because I just left out a mess and I sure don't want to come into any more mess. So Paul says, I need y'all to get your mess together. If you got to go outside in the woods and fight it out, go out there and fight it out. But when you talk about being in the kingdom, let's do kingdom business. There it is right there in the text. He calls them with a plea to reconciliation in verse 2. <laughs> and then he gives a word for those of us who will look at the situation and say, I'm not in that. That's their issue. I'm just going to pray for them. Oh, no, Paul, don't let us off the hook. Look what he says in verse 3. I ask you, my true partner, help these women. Oh, Paul, why you want to put me in the middle of this thing? Let them work it out. No, I don't want them to work it out alone, Paul says. I, I say, Paul, that you need, my third word, he pleads now for us to be responsible so he told him, you're my pastoral reward. He told him, I'm pleading for you to reconcile. Now he says, I want you to be responsible, not the two ladies, but all of you who are standing around looking. You see it going on on a regular basis, and you say nothing. Don't come tell the pastor. Don't tell the deacon. Intercede so that you can help healing. There it is right there. Look at that verse. I ask you, my true partners, to help these two women. Why? For they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. Why does he say that? Because if we don't, everything that we've done for the kingdom goes down the drain. Because of the impression that it leaves on those who looks at us. So, so. Here's what Paul's saying in Lang's language. How y'all treat each other is being observed by people who may consider being a part of your congregation. But when they see y'all act one way on Sunday morning, and then they have the privilege of somehow coming into another gathering and see how y'all act differently, it makes them scratch their head and wonder, is this where God's love exists? See, that's where they were problematic in Philippi. 
They showed love outwardly, but they couldn't show any love inwardly. They were struggling. And Paul says that's because you got an issue and you won't face it. So he says, I call on all of you to be responsible, verse 3. But then he says in verse 4, I want you to remember to encourage both of them to once again remain and rejoice. Now, why would he say remain? Because Paul knew us. Paul knew us. Paul knew that as soon as the heat get hot, some of us just leave. We disappear. I think it's amazing that we would do that at church, but nowhere else. You get hot with your coworker, you ain't gonna just walk off and quit. Nah, because I don't like him or her. You're not gonna quit. You're gonna say in your mind, well, I gotta find a way to get along because I gotta be here. Well, if church means, if God, let's, let's put it where it belongs, if God means that much to us, and this happens to be where we experience our fellowship with God and with one another, why do we leave when we get into a conflict with somebody? Conflict resolution is a part of human existence. And if you're looking for a place where you don't have any conflict with anybody, you're going to have to live on an island all by yourself. And if you live on an island all by yourself, then you won't have anybody, not only not conflict, then you won't have nobody to love you. Because you'll be all by yourself. You won't have anybody to disagree with. You won't have anybody to let you know that you're all right. No one can confirm you because you're all by yourself. That's the joy of interacting with other human beings. We're not always going to be this. They're going to be sometimes this. But it's our challenge to work at bringing it back to this so we can recognize how powerful human love truly is. There it is right there in the text. Paul says, help them rejoice. Look at it in verse 4. Always be full of the joy in the Lord. Why? Because you're going to need that when that joy is being robbed. you got to find a way to put it back in again. So he says, look, he says, rejoice in the Lord. I like the King James. And again, I say rejoice. And then he says something interesting. He says, let every one of you consider what you're doing. Think about what you're doing for the kingdom. Look at verse 5. He says, let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you are doing or all that you, are do, or the, all that you do do. Now, here's what he means by that. He preferenced that before he makes the last comment because he says, I'm going to put it back where it needs to be. Remember, and he writes to the Colossians in chapter 3, he makes this comment. He says, and all that you do, do to the glory of God. Now, if we really would grasp that sentence, it would change our whole outlook about how we do things and how we treat each other. Listen to what he says. In all that you do, do to the glory of God. Now, look at what he says in this fifth verse. He says, it's important that I tell you that because Jesus is coming back again. It's a warning as if to say, there's going to come a time when you're going to have to fess up to God and deal with why you wouldn't make that change in your life. So he says, remember the Lord is coming soon. 
That's his next word. Jesus is returning. And if I'm acting like Jesus is going to return, that would mean I don't have time for drama. I don't have time for a lot of issues that's unnecessary. I know we got conflict, but let's go ahead and resolve it so we can move on because the Lord is coming soon and I want to make sure I'm ready when he comes. So I'm more interested in rejoicing uh, than I am in trying to find out how can I beat you at this thing. And if that's not even worth, look what he says in verse 6. He says, let, let me remind you not only that God is returning, but exercise responsible praying. Look what he says in verse 6. Don't instead pray about everything. Maybe another one of my challenges, says Paul, is the two of you have differences because y'all do a lot of talking, but not enough praying. Y'all may do a lot of talking to each other, but you're not praying about what you're talking to each other about. You ever thought about just simply, you know, saying to the person, you know what, rather than us just talking at each other, let's just stop for a moment and pray that God give us insight and wisdom and the spirit of reconciliation so we can show people that whenever you do have a conflict, here's what you do. Seek the Lord where he may be found. Call upon his name while he is near and watch him reconcile so that the devil doesn't get the glory. There it is right there in the text. He says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything and tell God what you need and then thank him for what he's already done. So he says to them, is this the first time you ever had a conflict? That's what I meant when I say it's amazing how when we talk about church, we'll leave when we start having a little problem, but we won't leave anywhere else. That's what Paul means. Because you've had problems everywhere else, but you never left. You stood your ground and you worked it out. Why do we abandon church? Go somewhere else and take that same attitude that you, will, you left with here to somebody else's congregation and disturb that mix. Of course, only to discover that they got issues too. May not be the same, may not be at the same. That's the reason why people love to join mega churches. I see why. You can easily hide and got to worry about the conflict. Go to church, check in, check out, I'm on my way home. In a smaller church where you got to deal with everybody because you are part of the ministry, you're part of what's happening, and you are pinpointed in terms of being a responsible party, you just can't ignore what's happening in the group. Sure, you can pull down your shade, you can come in and out, but then the experience becomes so non-effective till you stop going. Because you feel like, what's the purpose? Whereas in a larger group, so you don't have that problem, you just go in, sit, do your thing, come on out. Until you make the nerve move to be a part of a ministry. Then you realize, oh, here I am, right back among human beings again with human tendencies in terms of interaction. And Paul says, prayer is what fixes that. Being prayed up on the power of God is what helps that comes to fruition. What's the reward of that? Prayer, says Paul, provides a peaceful reward. Verse 7. Then, see how that's, see how that, then, but not before, prayer is first. Then, verse 7, you will experience God's peace which surpasses all understanding. 
My contention is always, if you're going to dedicate your two or three hours, whatever it is you come to worship, why not be at peace? Why, why not be at peace? Why leave the battlefield of the secular context Monday through Friday, get an intermission on Saturday, and show up to the spiritual battlefield on Sunday morning unnecessarily that we are creating? Why do that? Man, I come to church and I want some peace from all the hell I just experienced last week. I don't want to fight with you and argue with you. and I want some peace in a context where it says the peace of God surpasses all understanding. I want to be so that whenever somebody says, where do you find a peace of mind, church? Well, how do you find it in church? I can't explain it because it surpasses all understanding. All I know is I find a peace at church. There it is right there in verse 7. If I'm praying, because if I understand the book of Job, chapter 1, when Job and the family, particularly Job, comes to present his gifts to God by way of worship, there's a little line that said, Satan came along with him. That means that not only does that rascal follow me around through the week, but he manages to find a way to show up in the worship context on Sunday morning. And Paul later says to Corinthians, he will come like an angel of light. That means that he'll find a way to even get in those of us who are representations of light to create dissension. And that's where Paul says, I'm not having it, I'm tired of it. That cannot be your reputation. And can I keep it real? I am so sick and tired of people saying that Great Little Zion is a good church until you join it. That's troubling. Until you join it. That's like saying, man, that's a pretty exterior, but once you get into the internal workings, you realize what it really is composed of. Now, in reality, every church is like that. That's in reality. Every church looks better in its presentation. I mean, if it wasn't, you wouldn't be able to invite people. It's called the art of persuasion. So you put your best foot forward first <laughs> until you join. Then you get to see who I really am behind the scenes. But that's every congregation. But what Paul is saying is, even with that, there should be a reflection of not only do I look bad, but I'm trying to work this thing out. We're working on ourselves. We're, we're trying to grow. And yeah, we got issues, but, but we're working this thing out in God's love. And we're trying to allow God's love to permeate through us so that we can make the necessary change. And show, we're going to see later, show other people what it means to grow in grace. So maybe we need to come to realize, first of all, that not all of us are perfect. In fact, none of us are perfect. And secondly, I don't care how holy and sanctified we look on Sunday morning, we're still working out our salvation. We're working on holiness. We're working on what it means to be sanctified. So Paul says you get a peaceful reward in verse 7. 
And then he says, his peace will guard your heart and mind as you live in Christ Jesus. I'm going to give you a piece of revelation that's extremely important, but yet it probably seems so insignificant to you because it ain't going to make you shout. And that's this. Most of the time, the stuff that we experience in church in terms of it being self-inflicting wounds is a result of us not having a peace with God ourselves. So whenever I'm unpeaceful, I'm going to make somebody else unpeaceful. See, misery follows misery. Whereas Paul is saying, when you rest in the peace of God, Satan can't use the smallest thing to agitate you because you're not interested in that. You're interested in finding a way to plow the field that we might grow seeds to reap harvest in due season. So we're not trying to destroy what we already have. We're trying to increase it. But I'm going to give you another piece of revelation. It ain't going to sound important to you, but it, 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 if, you, if you believe it, listen to me. It's going to help you. We cannot grow. You will never fill these pews with some special formula. It ain't going to happen. I could stay here and hoop until Jesus comes. That's not going to bring the people. You want to know what's going to bring the people? Here it is right here in the text. We lack a praying spirit. How do I know that? Just come here on Wednesday night. You'll see. Wow. Now, I know. I know this is what you're saying to me. I would love to get here, but I don't have the time. I'm busy. I, I feel you. I feel you. I feel you. I, I got all of that. But all I'm saying is, how come you don't have the time then, but you got the time when trouble comes? I'm, I'm just saying, church growth is work. And in fact, if you serve in any ministry, you'll come to realize church work is work. Dealing with people is work. Yeah, I know y'all, I know you feel me. If you've been a part of any committee or any ministry, you know it's work and it requires patience, <laughs> endurance, and you got to keep your eye on the prize. And the prize is what you are doing it for and who you are doing it for. Because many of us, I'm sure, would testify, if it wasn't for the fact that I know I'm doing it for the Lord, man, I turn this mother out. You hear me? But I know I'm doing it for God, and I know somewhere in here, Lord, there is some redemptiveness in all this chaos in the midst of this stuff. And yet God is saying it is, but one of your problems is you don't talk to me. You try to solve all your problems with all your little committees and all your little constructive organizational stuff instead of talking to me. In fact, if this is my work and I'm the architect of it, don't you think it's wise to come talk to the owner of the owner's manual? 
But no part of our problem is we think we're smarter than God and the preacher. That's a part of our problem. Because we read the same manual. Have you ever noticed that you never try to tell your doctor how to be a doctor? Or your lawyer how to practice law? Or your dentist how to practice dentistry? Or your orthodontist how to fix your teeth or whatever it is. Who's the guy on the feet? Podiatrist. You never tell him how to fix your feet? But yet you always trying to tell me how to correct y'all. I know it's on. I know it's on. That's because you think you know more than somebody else knows. It's right here in the text. Here it is. Look, look, look what he says. He says, his peace will guard your heart and minds as you live in Christ. Or let me move on. Maybe the argument is we're not living in Christ. We're living in ourselves. And that's what happens to a lot of middle-class, upper-middle-class black folk. We move out of the dependency we had on God when we were poor. And now that we got a little something-something, we are bigger than who God is. I'm going to move it on. I'm going to move it on. Here's my final point. Paul says, be reflective. Be reflective of what creates a happy life. Look at what he says in verse 8. Now, my brothers and sisters, one final thing. See, I think it's interesting that this translation makes that shift. One final thing he says I want to talk to you about. And as if he says, not only do I know you got to be praying and you got to be willing to confront each other, but he says, more importantly, reflecting back on chapter 2, when he says, let this mind be in you with also in Christ Jesus, he says, now I know, first I got to also get your mind right. Your mind ain't right. Something's wrong with your mind. And it's the thought patterns. It's the words that you're using that are just not enduring. Listen to what he says. Finally, my brother, fix your thoughts on what is true, what is lovely, what is admirable. Think about the things that are excellent and worthy of praise. So watch this. Church can't just be inspirational. It has to be instructional as well. If you shout hallelujah, know why I'm shouting hallelujah. There it is right there. Think on the things that brings life and productivity. Now here's a hard thing for us to do. Because when someone offends us, it's difficult to think about the good traits of that person because we're concentrating on the offense. But Paul is says, shift your thinking. Don't concentrate on that because when you feed that, that only grows. It'll grow. It'll keep growing and keep growing. But it'll grow <clears throat> and create a distance between the two. Paul says instead... Think about the good things and the admirable things. What brings a happiness to life about the person? And if that's not deep enough, look what he says secondly in verse 8. That's not deep enough. Verse 9, he says, reproduce what you see me do. See what he says, verse 9? Keep putting into practice all that you learn and receive from me. And then he reemphasized it. Everything you heard from me and saw me doing. It's as if someone paused and said to him, everything, 
everything you saw me see and do. Which means not just all the good stuff, but pay attention to the bad stuff I did so you can learn from that as well. And then look how he closes. Once again, then the God of peace will be with you. I think it's interesting how we would use that same phrase, form of words, to close this part of the fourth chapter. When you told me previously that if I pray to God, that that peace of God will guard my heart and mind, and then you're telling me here again, if I do X, Y, Z, it will bring peace to my life. Because Paul is finally trying to tell us a church community should not be known by its chaos. But it should be known by its celebratory expressions and healing of people's lives. It should be known by how it imparts into people hope. Hope that will help them deal with those hopeless moments they encounter through the course of the week. It should be to a point where people should be anticipating to get here on Sunday morning. Can't wait until worship starts because that's how much the fellowship means to them. So I close by saying, watch our words to each other. But in Paul's language, watch what you think in terms of words. Because in Jesus' language, it will come out. Because whatever in your heart is going to come out through your mouth at some point in time. And this is important because when we talk about wanting to know why we don't have more people, maybe we should start thinking about how do we treat each other? What do people see? And I would have told you this in a church meeting, but y'all don't come to church meetings. I got to tell you on Sunday morning when I got you before me. Yeah. But back to my first point. Remember, what I tell you is not to harm you. It's to help you. Why? Because you are my pastoral reward. And if I told you something to destroy you, I wouldn't be just destroying you. I'd be destroying me. So Paul uses this analogy, a father and child. Now that's not to demean you, that's the, it's an analogy. As a father disciplines his child, why? Because he loves him. And sometimes hard discipline is tough discipline. But I'm looking out the horizon for the child. And I'm thinking, I don't want my child to destroy what they could potentially experience. And that's what I think about our congregation. I'm trying to think, if I don't tell them, then I'm guilty of the words coming from Ezekiel. God says, if you don't tell them as the watchman on the tower that trouble is coming, their blood will be required on your hands. So I... Somebody may say that some things that I've said this morning should not have been said in the congregation. Here's what I got to tell you in return. I don't care if you think that's the issue. Why? Because I know one day I'm going to have to account to a higher power than you or I. And I don't want your blood on my hands because I wouldn't tell you the truth. 
Now, sometimes truth needs to be contextualized. By that, that means, you know, you probably might want to find a setting that you can't say certain things. This is not one of them. Because it's a warning. And that's what Paul did to these two sisters. Get yourself together. Settle your discrepancies. Because Jesus is coming back. And I don't want him to find me with my lamps untrimmed. Lord, let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. 